Welcome back to the ICU Life and Recovery Podcast. My name is Mark and I am the host and this episode is with a wonderful physiotherapist who is a lecturer at Brunel named Dr. Eve Corner and I just want to say a very special thanks to Jonathan Downham, also known as Critical Care Practitioner on Twitter. He also has a critical care podcast called Critical Care Practitioner, which I believe you can find at any of your podcasting websites. So I've had a succession of illnesses, which means that this podcast just took a lot longer to get out than I would normally like. And obviously I wouldn't usually have someone else edit it, which is what Jonathan has generously done with this episode and which I'm very thankful for. But I've had a couple of abscesses in my left and right uh, armpits which needed to be operated on and the wounds didn't heal quickly. One of them had another collection underneath which was causing acute pain until it exploded into the wound. So unfortunately this podcast took longer than it should have. I'm very sorry about that but we've managed to get it out. It's an absolutely fantastic episode of which I'm I'm very proud of and I'm very thankful for Eve for coming on. So I'm going to pass you on to Passmark who'll introduce Eve again and I really hope you enjoy this one. It, it was really great. Thanks. I am here with uh, Eve today. Eve, if you could explain who you are and, and what you do. Hi, thank you for having me here today to talk. Um, I'm Eve Corner. I'm a physiotherapist by background. I have a kind of mixed role really, but my special interest has been in rehab and critical care. I have a lot of clinical experience working at Chelsea and Westminster and the Royal Brompton Hospital. And I did my PhD in rehab after critical care, developing a functional scoring system to help to monitor patients with intensive care unit acquired weakness. And I did some qualitative work looking at the patient experience of rehab and recovery after critical care. And now I work more in an academic role, running an MSc in critical care and teaching um, undergraduate physiotherapy students about critical care. So I think the, the topic we had decided to, to talk about today was the physio's role in humanising of care, obviously within mm. ICU. Could you give me what you see humanising meaning in terms of care? Yeah, I think obviously it's very pertinent, particularly at the moment with the presence of COVID and PPE and people being unable to see people's faces and interact in that kind of human level. But my, as I said, I did it within my PhD, I did some work interviewing patients about their experience of recovery from critical illness. And a lot of what we actually ended up discussing, although the focus was intended to be on the actual experience of rehab, the thing that I really noticed and stood out to me from speaking to people was that actually critical care is a really dehumanizing place to be. Patients described kind of feeling like a slab of meat on a butcher's table, feeling like they were an object and kind of lost that element of who they were and that sense of self. I am a strong believer that the rehab process really needs to help people rebuild that sense of self and help them feel like a human being again. I think when you're stripped down to your basic physiology as might be necessary in the early stages of severe illness we focus on things like your blood pressure and your heart rate and actually as that person recovers and emerges from that critically ill state feeling completely different to the person that they were when they went in often having pain delirium functional difficulties unable to move and then actually giving that human element being um, helping them to feel like a person again is absolutely vitally important and probably one of the core benefits in my head anyway of early mobilization early rehab in a critical care setting yeah so i just want to pick up on one thing you said about dehumanization so obviously i would expect everyone that's listening to kind of know a bit about icu because if you're listening to an icu podcast for fun that don't know where what you're doing but in in ICU obviously the patient from my experience you know you're not going to the toilet yourself you're not breathing for yourself you can't speak you can't write you can't move particularly certain movements in the bed usually get a very immediate response from staff to suppress you in case you pull the tube 
or you pull lines. Yeah, it, it very much is. You lose the things that make that make you a person because you're you're literally stripped of everything you control in life. And and I think that that's a thing that is often forgotten in healthcare, just in general. And that the ICU is your workplace, but for that patient, it's where they're living. And I think that's that's kind of often forgot in terms of when you're moving patients even if it's just rotating to reduce pressure and things like that or when you're taking blood from arterial lines and things that although they don't maybe seem like they're capable of doing much they're probably capable of taking in more than you think I do think that that is something that has become an unfortunate byproduct of the sort of ICU environment and that a lot of time as you said maybe thought of as as a slab of meat with hundreds of tubes out of them Mm. and and i think culturally certainly i can only speak for like the uk where i experience things that we've moved even since my time in icu where we've moved miles on from from that which which is great well i'm always wanting to see things getting better and i did also note that you did say early mobilization obviously that's a big a big thing for me that i think is is extremely useful i hear lots of good things coming from johns hopkins and various other places that the early mobilization is just it should be the thing that's done when when it's able to be when the patient can move it should be it's been shown to help to reduce delirium among other things and even just from a common sense point of view, people are losing muscle mass because they're not moving. If you get people moving, they lose less muscle. If they've lost less muscle, then the recovery takes less time for them to get back to normal. And it just, it always seemed to me to be a very obvious thing that should be happening. But you, you bang against that. It's how we always did it. Well, that, that seems to be the big prohibitor for us, for us moving on to what seems to be the better thing to do. You're right. I think I often think about, you know, when someone goes into a hospital, they're put into a hospital gown. Everyone is in the same gown. And they're surrounded by people in a uniform and everyone is in the same uniform. And they're given a number and they're referred to by that number. And the only place you really see that elsewhere is in prison or in the army, in the armed forces. And both of those are intentionally designed in a way to dehumanize a person, to make them, you know, in the army, it's to kind of make them feel part of a unit and and a machine that's functioning together and being having a very authoritarian approach to, to, to the way they have to work. And that's necessary in that setting. And obviously in a prison setting, it's seen as a punishment, but it does happen in a hospital as well. You know, we, everyone's in the same, same gown in a bed number. And when you're working in that setting, you, your patient's very ill. So you're very acutely aware of keeping them alive and not always acutely aware of what that feels like to be the patient, particularly if you're kind of new to that environment. And I think in the time that I've worked in ICU, certainly there's been a big shift in trying to understand what that's like for the patient in the bed, trying to minimise that that feeling. Because you do, to be human, we, we have our own individuality. We have our own likes and dislikes. We have things that do, that define us. We wear clothes that express who we are. We look a certain way. The activities we do all define our personality. And we have control over what we do to a degree. You know, we have autonomy. If we want to get up and go to the, you know, go to the loo or go and get something to eat, then we can. And in an ICU setting, there's a huge loss of identity. You're not able to do the things that you would normally do that define you as a person. You're not able to wear the clothes or express yourself in that kind of non, uh, non-verbal way that articulates something about who you are to other people. And you have no control over the situation because it's very alien. And at the beginning, that can be, you know, often the patients I spoke to didn't really necessarily want to be in control because they were so unwell that actually having someone that knows what's happening and understands the situation kind of taking control and being paternalistic is essentially beneficial. But 
as people start to recover, there's a whole rebuilding of not just strength and function and all the kind of physiology that we talk about. There's a rebuilding of who, who you are. I refer to it as a recalibration, kind of recalibrating what you're able to do, exploring this kind of new body, trying to battle with those hallucinations and delirium and to work out what was reality and what wasn't reality. As a physio, I think I've, yeah, I've certainly veered more towards thinking about how you can use rehab to help people regain their sense of agency and sense of individuality and sense of control over the situation. And I think there's lots of things that positive things that are being done to help with that. I'm sure obviously you know of Kate Tatum's rehab legend campaign with things like gardens, sunshine therapy, allowing pets onto the unit that sense of normality because as you say it is it becomes your home that setting becomes your home and it's a, a pretty alien home to wake up to with lots of noises and smells and sounds that aren't familiar so for me it's it's an essential part of the beginning of that rehab journey yeah obviously kate was the first guest uh, that we had on so so things like sunshine therapy there's uh, dr barbara can has done a lot of research and sleep in ICU in people normally plays a big part in telling the patient when it is daytime, nighttime, and how sequencing the lights off at night, having as little contact as is physically safe to do, uh, can help patients actually sleep. Because I think I seem to remember like the average sleep for a patient in ICU is seven minutes a day or something scarily worrying like that because if you if you had a normal healthy person you restricted their sleep into seven minutes a day they would be having lots of serious mental uh, health issues they would be having delirium and other things there's yeah there's there's many things environmentally in icu that's not particularly conducive to to good healing the machines are all near the patient's head they're all very loud and and unusual noises i seem to remember reading somewhere it was the equivalent to a jackhammer going off beside your ear mm. so th that's not conducive to to being able to sleep either <laughs> if patients sleep better if you manage to get them active then these things help improve mood they help improve your sleep cycle as part of how you recover so you know these are these are things we need to 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 kind of think about but i don't think they're going to change in the short term sleep yeah sleep's something i'm really passionate about actually because i think um you know i've reflected a lot on my junior years as a physio and i think you know you, you have a patients that you want to see and you want to encourage them to do the physical rehab because it is really important and it is the way that they'll get stronger and get out of there but i think sometimes we can have our own agenda and want to do it on our time scales and sometimes that can lead to actually kind of waking people up for rehab I've seen that happen before you know I've seen people you know say well if you, I can't come back later on because I've got other people to see you know that kind of everyone's got their own kind of agenda and their own time scale and actually sleepers if, you, if you're not sleeping there's no point in trying to engage someone in exercise in my head I think if someone's asleep you need them to sleep it's, it's such a, a vital component of healing and of generally feeling good I agree with the the daylight thing as well I mean I've noticed it even just now as we're getting into the winter months and the days are getting shorter and the nights are getting longer and you know that precious daylight in the middle of the day it's so important and it makes you you know it makes people feel depressed and sad when they're in pitch black all the time and when the days get shorter so if you're an ICU patient that hasn't been outside for weeks months sometimes and you haven't had that sun on your skin then I can't really I can't even imagine what that might feel like really so yeah I think there's there's a bit of a noxious I always call it the noxious cycle of ICU because if you don't sleep you can't do the rehab you can't do the rehab you get weaker you can't if you get weaker you stay in bed more then um then there's usually pain pain thrown in there somewhere and you have this kind of vicious cyclical process and you have to try and break that process and for me the, one of the first things to, to doing that is to try to normalize routine uh, and get into a routine so anything that can try and help that diurnal pattern of sleep wake cycle is precious i think in an ic setting 
yeah. there is lots of work going on in terms of like monitoring sound and trying to keep that low and um, just simple things like putting kind of soft edging on bins I've, I've heard stories of people banning staff from have opening a can fizzy fizzy can of drink on icu because the noise of that makes people want to drink and be thirsty and that kind of thing so there is work going on in that in that area but i think there's a lot more that could be done i think that hospitals in general particularly nighttime are, are louder than they need to be or mm. should be perhaps maybe not need to be implies that people are making erroneous noise and that's not necessarily true i think a lot of the sound in icu will require things like equipment to change i think that, that a lot of the equipment is is the big noise generator i generally like bins are like sharp noises but like most of the time i think or at least in the icu i experienced staff aren't like talking loudly they're talking very quietly and I was at the bed that sat directly in front of the nursing station. So, like, I feel ICU staff are kind of aware, at least in, in my experience. I can't obviously speak for any other ICU. Um, our, our ICU is only six beds, so it's a very small one. So, like, noise wouldn't wouldn't get lost. It would it would uh, reverberate around. But I, I think, generally speaking, that. It's not the people really that are making mm. an awful lot of noises and like beds, you know, ones that, that have the, the sort of auto kind of tilt to take the pressure off the patients there. They have a certain amount of noise in them in themselves. So I think there's going to have to be a complete redesign of how equipment is, is assessed in terms of its usefulness or is it simply that we need to move where equipment is. I don't mm. know if that's possible. Is it possible to have the same equipment as a piece of equipment up behind me any further away from where they need to be than if it was towards my feet, the same distance? But that might stop the noise being quite so in the head region. But I, I, yeah, again, I don't know. <laughs> There was a study that looked at where the noise came from in ICU and they drew um, they drew in it kind of a floor map of an yeah. ICU and then they highlighted where all the noise was and it was all around the, around the patient's head. And I guess also, I mean, I haven't been in an ICU bed, thankfully, but I guess also a lot of it's kind of behind your head as well. So you almost can't see what's necessarily making the noise. Yeah, um, I, I would say it, it's behind you, but it's not so far behind you so it's quite it's quite close and i can understand why people think they're being surrounded or or kind of pressed that way and that all mm. of this noise is like you know it's like when you when you feel someone's right behind you when you're when you're walking you know that kind of that i imagine that's the kind of feeling it in, in folks almost. yeah obviously those, those are things that uh, that i can control i just think that these are things that need to be thought about that no one would sleep in in their bed at home if someone was making noise that loud at, at their head so yeah yeah it's, it's just maybe it'll change maybe maybe with dyson making ventilators <laughs> they're quite good at making things a bit quieter aren't they yeah as long as he makes them as good <laughs> you know he is a he is an engineer that likes to to take something that's established and make it work better. So one of the other things I was, obviously we spoke on the Intensive Care Society's webinar about MDT, how important is the MDT approach, particularly in critical care? For me, I think, it, I think it's really vital. I think I've got a two, there's two kind of uh, thought processes going on in terms of MDT. I think my first thought process is actually that I think as professions we probably need to move out of our professional silos a bit more and work more in skills-based approach so overlap what we're doing recognize our strengths and weaknesses and try and try and collaborate kind of think about how we can work in a smarter way when when we're doing a task we're actually integrating multiple different kind of professional roles if that makes sense so you know when we're thinking about our oh, physio physical rehab is often focused on standing walking 
the occupational therapist would make that a much more a much more functional task so something that's what we call an activity of daily living so getting you to you know teach teaching people to wash and dress for themselves eat for themselves so i think that integrating those roles and integrating those the way that we work is really vital the other thing about the multi-professional approach is people have slightly different they have different training and they have different things that are their primary focus and as a result, people are looking at things through a different lens. So pick up on different aspects of care that are maybe considered a lower priority for a different professional group. Does that make sense? So I'm going to use the example of the occupational therapists as well, because I think they could have such a huge positive impact in an ICU setting because of the whole approach to function and rehab and what's meaningful to the patient and engaging patients in, in, in activity that means something to them. And I think you know, that's their unique selling point, I guess, and the thing they're focusing on. Whereas if you've got kind of an ICU doctor, their focus is on keeping you alive. You need to have it all brought together in order to help people recover through that journey from initial admission to, to discharge. Because I think, I think in the past, ICU was kind of seen as the place where you were resuscitated and people died or survived and those that survived then started their rehab later on down the journey but as we're getting better at the medicine like medical side of things where people are surviving that may not have before and they're surviving with severe disability and, and weakness and psychological trauma and so that rehab stage really needs to start right at the beginning as, as early as possible and I think it's just essential that you have all of those disciplines involved I think it's a shame that we don't have more like speech and language therapists and psychologists working in the IC setting because they're often some of the disciplines that we have fewer of and actually they're, they're valuable so valuable it's moving it's definitely there's definitely a trend towards that more interdisciplinary focus I think the way we're working now is much smarter much more collaboratively you know the whole ICU setting since I first started working there has changed so much yeah I think healthcare as a kind of whole subject has, has changed completely even in my lifetime as a patient so I've been in and out of hospital since I was 14 so that's next year that'll be about 20 years even in that relatively short period of time of 20 years we've moved very much from the doctor who tells everybody this is what's done and then mm. his the, the orders are, are, are carried out to be in a very it's a very different environment even on the wards so it's not the consultant is dictating terms to everyone including patient there's much more discussion between nursing staff junior doctors consultant patient where where the environment has changed i think in kind of icu there was i call them the the core professions because of the professions that seem to exist regardless of size uh, ICU, which are medics, nurses, physios, the three that exists in every ICU. They're never missing because you can't, can't run the boat without those three. I always think that your ICU team is always better when you have more professions there, when you have more, the more diversity of the professions you have there, the different points of view you have, the different skills, the different trainings, but also different views on what's important. Mm. So for a physio, it might be getting up, getting moving. That might be the thing that's that's important. That you know that helps, and that's that's true. You know, for the doctors, it might be reducing sedation, getting the sedation down, getting them less reliant on vent. You know, the nurses are are <laughs> making sure everything doesn't fall apart. Usually, the sort of constant monitoring of everything because they're controlling your entire bodily function. You know, as you said, with occupational therapists, their their view is much more, yes, we need to get them moving, but they need to be able to do these things because these are the things that will help them like regain control of their their existence. So being able to wash, being able to dress, being able to write, you know, these things are important. But even there, there's this sort of difference in scope. Obviously, we had uh, Dr. Hosey, who's the ICU psychologist for Johns Hopkins she was on the last episode with a guest which I think is two episodes ago now and I'm I'm a big proponent that that psychologists should be in there should be ICU uh, psychologists 
like in every uh, ICU, they, they should be like part of the furniture. Um, mm. Because if you know there's delirium, you know, there's a good chance there's going to be anxiety and depression or PTSD in the following. If you catch it earlier, you, you can uh, treat it earlier. So I had, I got them all. I had anxiety, depression and PTSD post ICU. In terms of my depression, that was pretty mild in the hospital and it was mostly dealt with then. But the anxiety and PTSD triggered uh, when I was going to the recovery clinic and it was probably seven months post ICU before I got treatment. If you have an ICU psychologist in department, I feel that would have been caught sooner and perhaps wouldn't have got to the, the monstrous state that it did. So, I, yeah. you know, I'm a big, a big proponent in, in psychology and the, the ICU, I think. They also, you know, they have a different if you look at physios, occupational therapists, medics, nurses are all are all very physical focused. Mm-hmm. They're all on the yeah the body aspect of it and trying to get that back. Where the psychologists are much more focused on, yep, body's great, but if they're terrified every time they they hear a sound or or go outside, then that's a massive impact on life, and we need to also address that Um, yeah I yeah I completely agree with you I think um I've been lucky to have worked with some psychologists during my career and the thing that I I believe that psychologists should be there with for the physical rehab sessions and should be those that are doing the physical rehab should learn from the psychologists about how to communicate how to talk how to encourage how to recognize and more consistently just like you said that kind of every icu has physio not every icu has a psychologist but physio and icu isn't it's about being you're coaching someone and i I usually the analogy of a sports coach if you're you know if you're looking at something like sky cycle um and the, the really successful cycle team and they use this concept of marginal gains and they just made little advances in every in every different aspect of what they did. And a huge part of that is the psychology of it. They talk at the England Rugby World Cup winning team. They talk about what Clive Woodward did in terms of their training. And they he did things like teach them to speak Afrikaans so that they could understand the South Africans when they were talking. And it's it's like it's not about the physical, it's about everything. It's about you're coaching someone, you're not just doing an exercise you're coaching their whole recovery and I think that so that the skill of that being able to motivate engage patient recognize when the psychological trauma that the psychologists have is needs to be infiltrated to all professions working in the ICU setting but I mean certainly I think the psychological impact for a lot of people is has a bigger impact on their life than physical impact if you're you know if you're physically unable to do things but you're psychologically okay with that and you've dealt with that you've dealt with it in yourself then you're more likely to have a better outcome than if you're you're physically fully capable but you're having major anxiety and depression then it's it's how you feel is is the most important outcome i think and it kind of differentiates that kind of victim from survivor almost i guess certainly in my experience the physical recovery was a lot quicker i was in hospital 17 weeks but by the end of that 17 weeks I was relatively mobile I was I wasn't back to to walk in huge distances but I could walk from the second floor ward to the front door without any real problem you know I was physically good maybe not back to to full but you know they're psychologically probably not although I think it was discharged April May and then it was September-ish when I went back to ICU Inspire clinic that as soon as I walked in for assessment went through the, the double doors at the assessment I was hit with a panic attack I had no idea what was going on but at that point like the psychological aspects were it was extremely hard coping with it because I was having mm. At that point, I then started having panic attacks three or four times a day. So they were far more inhibiting to, to kind of functioning as a human being than, than any of the physical aspects I'd had while in ICU. 
definitely psych psychology is a thing that should be embedded it's, you know it should become like like nurses and physios and medics it should be one of those ones that's just it's just a universal thing that everybody has and it's not questioned because i think they've got so much to add to the to the icu puzzle certainly when i worked in the burns icu there was um a psychologist there a lot of the time um it was just so useful being able to say you know how do you communicate how do you, how, how should i communicate this to the to the patient how what's the best way to engage them and there but there are ability and insight into the kind of psychological processes and their you know the way they would help the other disciplines to deliver their care better to minimize trauma I think is just so vitally important also the, the whole kind of in terms of the humanization of care I think after I sat down and actually spoke to people and really tried to understand what it would like to be a patient I would do things like bring the family into every rehab session and then you know whenever the patient was upright I'd always say to the relative you know do you want to have a hug and then they enable them to have that physical contact i think the physical contact with your family is also a really important part of that journey of recovery and something that we don't you know in the past there has been this idea of just shutting family out and you know they're having their physio now you go and wait outside and come back later i think that is changing and family are getting more engaged with the with the rehab process and that in itself can help the healing and the trauma for both psychological trauma for both the patient and the family members i think yeah i think that's that's yet again another hospital wide culture change that seems to be that that the view originally was that family get in the way of of the work and not understanding that actually the family help the work go better and particularly yeah. when you're when you are talking about an icu environment when you remove the family you're removing what could be the only familiarity that they have yeah. in the environment mm. and then you wonder why they've got delirium well it's yeah. because you took the only grounding they have in reality away you know reorientation is hard in icu because everything is alien and nothing is is familiar so the things that help to kind of keep the, the patient grounded are not the things you should be removing. Couldn't agree more with that. I think one of the things I've found interesting is talking to survivors is that often the first thing that they remember is the, the family member at the bedside. So there's kind of, you know, they remember getting sick and then there's was usually in the people I've spoken to a kind of memory, a gap where they don't really remember what happened and then woken up in this kind of really alien environment. But the first kind of thing that was really hope instilled hope was that family member being being there and so i just yeah i, I think i don't think we can underestimate the impact of having family at, at the bedside yeah so so my experience is slightly different from that i have vivid memories of my my delirium uh, yeah I've, I've i've spoke about it a lot i'm not particularly going to go into it but i remember the the torturing and, and abuse and things so i didn't have the the blank of you know, I was ill, blank space, then woke up. Um, but I do remember waking up because my delirium experience, I felt it had, it had happened over seven years. Seven years? So, yeah. Um, uh, seven years of being constantly tortured, brought back in various various aspects. So when I woke up, the first thing I asked was what, what day it was or what date it was. And um, because that was very important to me, because when they told me what the date was, uh, I kind of like, I remember the feeling of, of physically being like everything was uptight because it was terrified. And then they told me the date and then I just like sunk into the bed and just everything, everything relaxed because at that point I knew that what I had experienced was not real. And that was, that was a big burden <laughs> off of me because it, it's very scary and obviously a lot of my early sort of anxiety and attacks came from one particular ICU consultant who I believe must have been managing my care at the times when they were bringing me around or whatever and so I was I was sure they were they were the big bad of the delirium so I would have as far as I was aware I'd never met them but I was having a very visceral reaction to them spoke a bit about or early mobilization 
my understanding is that it is done much more frequently now than way back five years. How easy is it to move a patient one? Because I know they're doing it now with patients on vent. How difficult is it to to get a patient moving when they're still vented? It can be very difficult and not, you know, for the patient, obviously, more than for the staff. But yeah, at times, I mean, the key is to have that combination of good sedation management, good pain relief, family engagement, and all, all of those things will facilitate the process of early mobilisation and delirium management. If you've got someone that's incredibly weak and ventilated, it can take the, the greatest number of physios that I've rehabbed a patient with was seven. So it took seven of us to get the patient sitting in an upright position. Obviously, for the patient in the early days, that can be physiologically the equivalent of doing a hit class, you know, working really hard for 40 minutes or so, doing kind of high intensity exercise. It can be quite tricky. And one of the difficulties is the amount of equipment and the amount of lines and, you know, trying to reassure the patient that everything's okay whilst keeping an eye on everything around and making sure nothing gets pulled out and making sure that you're being responsive to them getting tired. I think people talk about early mobilization and how it should happen more, but if you have a very weak patient, it is, it's a skill to get someone moving that's that, that weak. So I think that's potentially been one of the reasons why it hasn't been done as much. I think it hadn't been done as much in the past, I should say. I think there is still an anxiety if someone has an endotracheal tube in and from some clinicians about moving patients so some units will still wait until there's a tracheostomy or the patient's extubated to get someone out. you can come out sweating <laughs> from those early rehab sessions much like, and the patients often are white afterwards as well and having to you know fall straight back to sleep again it is a skill I think the key to it is having someone in charge of the whole situation with the patient but also with the team so that everyone knows exactly what their role is in that um, in that setting. But, you know, for the less weak patient, it's obviously a lot easier. If you've got someone that's able to do more, then it becomes a, a less, it becomes a, a task that they can kind of, you know, you need less people for and less, less hands around. It is, it's rewarding, though, I think. As for a professional, it's quite rewarding. If you've had a person that's been with you for a prolonged period and they're haven't done anything and then you get them moving for the first time it's quite rewarding I'm not always sure it's as rewarding for the patient as it is for the staff sometimes I think I've heard people find it quite disheartening that all they've done is sat on the edge of the bed and then been exhausted and actually having a load of professionals applauding you for doing what you know what would have been a kind of relatively menial task prior to your critical illness um, which is now a kind of equivalent of climbing a mountain is uh, isn't always the best approach i think for us all to get excited and applaud and things so i think i think recognizing how hard that is for the patient and recognizing that even though you see it as a big milestone you just need to be aware that be perceptive to what what the patient's views are and whether that is seen as to them as a milestone. i don't know how did you feel when you sat up for the first time um so i've had six or seven abdominal surgeries um, so like rehabbing has has been something that I've had to do quite a lot, particularly after like my initial colectomy. I was like nine and a half stone for context, so I'm six foot one. So I was very, very underweight. Um, yeah. so, so rehabbing was quite hard. So that sort of prepared me. So I've, I've always had the kind of similar mindset when I rehabbed and it was the same after ICU was uh, I didn't get I don't believe I had any in ICU rehabilitation there, there might have been while I was at various stages of sedation that I don't remember but I was only in ICU a couple of days after I got extubated moved to the high dependency so most of the work was done there mm. I vaguely remember sitting on the edge of the bed and being quite wore out but I remember the first stand they wanted me to move to the chair and I went because I was on the the, the torus so I'm trying I'm trying to think of how I can explain it so it's like a standing support frame that has okay, kind of like two handles I don't know how to, to technically <laughs> describe it but it's like a like a 
forearm supported moving frame that has hand grips. That's the, the best way I can describe it. And we, I stood up with that and they wanted me to move to the chair, which was there. And I said, no, I'll just, I'll walk to the, because I knew if, if I just did the chair, then that would mean I would be longer till I got to the door. So if I just walk to the door, then maybe next time, next session, I can go to the nurse's station because I know the longer it takes me to, to rehabilitate, the longer I'm going to be here. I don't want to be here. So let's, let's, let's move the show faster mm. because it'll, it'll probably hurt me. But I'm willing to take that heart for to speed the process up to get me home. Yeah, that's that's kind of always been my approach post surgery. Is I'm going to go as hard as I can, early as I can, because that means I'm not going to be hanging about here and don't particularly want to be be here. I don't I don't think I'm the I'm the norm in terms of of what the patient experience is and that that my mindset has always been that and it's been that way because of the many the many surgeries and rehabilitations that I've had to do I know from my first kind of couple it didn't really work that way and it didn't benefit me it took ages and I felt rubbish for a very long period of time so now I work as hard as early as I can so that I don't feel like that you know that yeah you know the process and the steps to the steps to recovery it's really interesting that you say you don't don't uh, recall any physio in ICU because I've, um, as I said, I did this work interviewing uh, survivors of critical illness and I personally had rehabbed all of them in ICU and none of them remembered any of it. So it was quite interesting that there's actually like a complete lack of memory actually of what happens early on. The kind of strongest memory for all of them was standing in terms of their physical rehab was standing for the first time but a lot of them hadn't recall, couldn't recall any of the any of the rehab in the early days so. You know there's lot, lots of drugs going, going on, going on so. <laughs> and maybe it's not and maybe it's not thought of as rehab you know sitting on the edge of the bed isn't really in a normal um, uh, in a normal yeah, situation. I, isn't I really would see that as but I don't remember that ever happening but but then again like I was in and out of of consciousness so it's kind of hard to piece anything concrete around until I was like awake most of the time. I think also I don't think we can underestimate the exhaustion people get after after doing a small amount of activity even I mean I've never been in critical care but I I did break my leg um very badly and had to have five operations on it and had a pulmonary embolus afterwards I was quite unwell with that and in, in hospital multiple times and the PE was the thing that made me kind of more unwell but I just remember being absolutely shattered like going home and I was dragging myself much like you I was like I want to the more I do the quicker I'll get better I was dragging myself to the swimming baths every day to try and do something keep my body moving and because I had the broken leg and the pee and I'd I'd be in the pool for about 15 minutes and then I'd um get get home <laughs> and then I'd sleep for about four hours <laughs> so I was absolutely exhausted it completely wiped me and that was you know that wasn't a, a relatively severe in, well a severe injury and a, a relatively kind of severe medical problem but nowhere near on the spectrum of critical illness so I think that that exhaustion I could not articulate and after I'd been through that process, I really appreciated how tired people were when they said they were tired. That complete whole body, physical, mental exhaustion. Yeah, yeah. I always always think that fatigue, particularly like after ICU, is a very strange concept that you maybe don't get unless you've been really unwell and you don't kind of understand it because it can be you're sitting talking to someone maybe for like half an hour and then you're like oh, it's time to to sleep now because I'm I'm completely done I have used all of my energy resources on what you might seem to be a very menial thing but that's me I'm done mm-hmm. right time to sleep and it is a very a very strange thing and it can be quite worrying for people and they're like why, why am I sleeping so much it's just normal it's just you don't have the reserves of energy that you used to have and everything takes 10 times as much energy to do as it did. That can be quite demoralizing for people as well. But I think that's, yeah. that's another thing that like 
physio is involved in is the sort of management of the sort of expectations and mood and also reminding people well yesterday you sat on the edge of the bed now you've moved to the chair but you know that may not seem like a big thing to you but that's this big step and getting better or you sat in the chair for 30 minutes yesterday but you sat in the chair for two hours today that's that's four times what you did you know that's and I think that sort of management of mood is another thing that the physios kind of are very important in because they tend to be there's a reason why they're, they're called physio terrorists because they come in and they terrorize you uh, uh, so they they are often the ones that are sort of pushing the physical boundaries mm. and so they have to be the people that sort of manage the sort of negative thinking of oh i only walk 10 steps but 10 steps is is brilliant if you've only walked two steps before or you've only moved to the chair or so that's a very important role that the physios play in the recovery process and if it's done right can have a massive psychological impact because if you stop the patient going oh well i'm not able to do this oh i can't do this oh these things that i used to do i can if their view of the experience goes instead from looking down at what they've not been able to do but looking up at oh i've been able to do this that i wasn't able to do yesterday or these are the things i can do that i wasn't able to do last week that can as you said the toxic spiral that can sever that because the negativity is no longer there so it's more about can i can i go further tomorrow yeah. or yeah i completely agree with you i think that's kind of more eloquently put what i was trying to say about co the coaching aspect and how like uh, how psychologists can help us and how we communicate things because highlighting improvements that a patient might not so not necessarily recognize as an improvement can be hugely have a hugely motivational impact or, or at least help someone to identify progress and i think if you can identify progress you can start thinking about what that future might look like but if you don't if you as the patient can't recognize any progress and it's like well how do you then envisage what your future might look like if you can't see any progression and i think if we are able to help people to see that progress or to feel that progress to like I often say, how did that make you feel? You know, how do you feel after doing that? How do you feel after achieving that? It can just, like you say, break that cycle and help people to kind of think about a, a positive outcome instead of a bit, a bit more. But we, you're right, we do. We are kind of put in terms of physiology. We are pushing the boundaries of the patient's physiology more than other other professional groups, arguably, because we're kind of challenging them, I suppose physically so um often yeah we might not be the most liked person <laughs> on the unit at times <laughs> I, I do think that uh, there's also an important thing of physio tends to be the same person that you're seeing mm. so like nurses tend to change where but the physio is the person you may see them every day to start with we, we didn't have weekend physio when i was in i don't know if that's changed so had the same physio Monday to Friday for like two weeks. So their ability to see progress is much better than a nurse who's maybe had you for two days. And mm. so I think that that's a very important aspect as well is that the physio is the continuity of the, the process where like the doctors aren't, aren't so hands-on involved in patient there, they're managing all of the other uh, sort of me medical aspects. So the physio is, is in, a, in a key position for a lot of things, of the sort of motivation of the patient, making sure that their the kind of mood is pointing, I always like to say, is it pointing up instead of pointing down? So looking up at the things that you've recovered rather than down at the things that you've lost. And I always, I always think that they're probably in the best position to see if there's a patient's developed delirium which is an, another thing that obviously delirium has become the big the big topic of the of the day obviously with like sign guidelines and, and other things that have set down the do's and don'ts so i think that they have a very unique position within the icu mdt like a very key role 
that maybe isn't like their real work. So that it's not it's it's things outside of their their physiotherapy aspect of their job that put them in a position where they can see things that won't be seen by others who aren't day-to-day with the patient and they maybe have more verbal contact with the patient on a more person-to-person level rather than a caregiver patient level. Yeah I think it's interesting you say that because actually a lot of um, doctors will often that I've worked with in the past will often come to the physio and say you know you're here say exactly what you've just said you're the kind of consistent person that's with them every day what do you think about their progress what do you think about you know they they often seek your advice for that reason so but it does put you in a in a unique unique position and I think the relation the therapeutic relationship between the physio and the patient is it can be a bit of a make or break at times the longest I've treated a patient for is is it was nearly six months every day I think the other thing is you actually you get quite physically close to people as well more so than other professional groups because you're kind of up on the bed behind people you know often holding them upright and things so there's that and you do have to build that relationship with the patient that of trust I think it's so vitally important that we get to know people better I used to have all sorts of music on my phone because I'd take my phone into any session and ask the patient what they wanted to listen to and then have music playing on during the session because I felt like it separated you know it it was helpful I never exercised without music and it made that a an activity for the day in a way it kind of segregated it even more from the kind of day-to-day ICU setting but um, I think we're very lucky in that that we have that consistency with people as well because it enables us enables us to see progress when other people might not be able to see it in the clinical team even Um, so it enables us to kind of keep motivated and keep motivating. Yeah I think I think music is a key aspect I think music is such a a, an easy way to affect mood Uh, I think that you know it's been shown in delirium and in ICU and various other settings that it helps create a positive reaction from people so you know I think music is very easy and very uh, effective way to to kind of improve people's mood and and it it can really change like their outlook on things you can have a really bad day but if you listen to that song that you know that your favorite song that can change a bad day to an all right day or it can change an all right day to a good day so it's it's a very underused tool that is so easily accessible to to everybody but can really have a have a big mm. impact i think there's also something about that kind of sense of control like you're controlling what music's on your it's your choice it's your identity it's your that expression again of that kind of being yourself and and i think that's really important because that's something that you can easily control what music you're listening to but I, yeah, I think there's just really simple things like music, good sleep quality, daylight, human touch, be that with family or just, you know, just the caring touch of a professional just can have such a big impact on helping that person feel, just feel better about the situation. Yeah, and I think that sort of physios have a very different position and I think like doctors and nurses are often uh, telling the patient, you know, like, either bad news or things that are happening or things that they shouldn't do but the, the physios and there's some occupational therapists although I didn't have occupational therapy while I was in ICU are doing things to kind of give they're sort of empowering and, and giving like patient back things so they are mm. the sort of the positive to the to perhaps the others negatives you know they're obviously physios and occupational therapists are getting people back doing things that they would normally have done so they're adding to what uh, what was there and I think that that allows a very different relationship to exist with the physios and the occupational therapists than for the doctors and the nurses. Yeah we're quite lucky as a professional group I guess working in that setting that most of the things that we, we deal with are the positives of the or we can make them into positives at least, whereas we're not as involved in the kind of delivery of bad news and things. But um, that, that also positions, it's easier to gain trust in that position, which somebody who's had bad delirium, where they're maybe thinking they're being tortured and, and, and assaulted by what is most 
whilst often the time the medics and the, the nursing staff it allows you to sit outside of that that bubble and through that kind of gained relationship they can then be trust regained with the with the other professions because if you as a physio gain the trust of the patient who's had terrible delirium is probably still a bit paranoid then you develop the trust and then they see you speaking with the people that they maybe were like mm, i'm not sure about them and then that means that that trust bubble can expand to include the other people which maybe makes them less less afraid less perhaps belligerent more receptive to nursing staff and medics and I, you know there, there's lots of aspects of the physio's role in ICU outside of what is their their job of getting the patient moving that is maybe not really appreciated as much as mm. getting the patient moving that's great and that's in essence what's going to get them back to to normal living but if they don't trust anyone then it's going to be very hard to get them to agree to anything if you miss delirium so you know if the physio is not part of that i think the patient has delirium conversation then it might be three four five days later before it's caught and in that time <laughs> lots of lots of complications can can resolve from that even if they're not pulling lines and being hyperactive you know it can mm. still be severely impacting on their on their long-term recovery so i think it's the same with with every job in icu there there's more than what is the core role, uh, role. There's, there's more that they do there's more that they bring to the icu puzzle as, a, yeah. as i always i was like it and the, and the more professionals you have the more of those extra things you're getting in your team and the better care that can be delivered and it's not always going to be possible to have psychologists occupational therapists speech and language therapists animal assisted therapy i'm sure i'm missing some other ones but those are the ones that sit on the top of my head like not every icu is going to have them it would be nice if they did but a six bed icu a district hospital in a relatively rural area isn't going to be able to to access them so sometimes physios maybe have to do some occupational therapy and nurses have to do a bit of physiotherapy and you know you just have to pull as much skill as you can but mm. you know obviously the mdt process shouldn't be something that we have to discuss it, it shouldn't be something that people think needs to be discussed about it should be something that exists in every icu and it should be as diverse as you can physically get as, as much resource as you as you can pull to sit in your icu i never understood why people don't don't get the mdt process i don't i don't understand it the mdt makes common sense the more people you have looking at a problem the more likely you are to get the right solution and that's yeah and also yeah different professions have very different approaches and different personality types even and different training and different ways of trying to work out the problem and the solution and i think that not just the perspective but the method that methods that they that we, that we take as different professionals can some people you know respond differently to different kind of approaches and and when you have a, a functioning MET, then it, it can it's there's nothing better than it. like it's like having a family when you've got a functioning MDT and everyone you know having everyone's input can make a huge difference and help people kind of pick things up earlier and if you pick things up like you say delirium earlier then you can manage them earlier and then you reduce the risk of long-term consequences so we're, yeah. we're getting sort of to the end of the, of the time was there anything that you wanted to ask me as a patient or or anything else that you you wanted to know or the thing that always intrigues me is like what's it like that when the physical rehab side of things i'm always intrigued by you know what's it how you know what's it like when someone kind of gets you up onto the edge of the bed and gets you walking it's better i guess I, I always feel that i've had pretty good physiotherapy so i don't i don't think there's been any sort of negatives but like sitting on the edge of the bed I think the key things that, that you need to remember is that you're the, 
I don't want to say you're the adult in the relationship, but you're the fully functional person in the relationship. And so you need to make sure that the patient knows that what they've done is, is a success. If all they're able to do is get the legs over the side of the bed set up, that that is a success. And uh, it might not be so easy to convey it, but you know, that that sort of letting them understand that it's a success, but without the over overdoing it so like the cheering and things like that might have a negative thing but like affirmation yeah but just being positive but not over positive is the it's a hard balance to find like and it will be the problem is it's not the same for everyone some people might like the applause of of the team might be like yeah this is definitely Mm. and then for some people that might be uh what are you clapping about this is like and that might cause them to regress so i, I think yeah, yeah mood, mood management the, is the big thing i think the making sure that the patient knows that they're succeeding yeah <laughs> even, I, even when they feel like they're dying because that first dangle over the edge often is you know you you felt like you've climbed a mountain and you feel like you're you're dying inside you've hit the wall you know the wall that you get in, in like marathon running and you've went beyond it and and like you've spent everything it may not seem like it to the outside but that is what it feels like usually when you're you're doing these things is like you've pushed to the point where you can't you can't go anymore mm. that that's the thing that's going to help you get better and that that feeling like that might feel bad just now but tomorrow it means that you'll be able to do a little bit more maybe it might just be that you'll be able to set up for a minute instead of 30 seconds or it might mean you'll be able to stand up that feeling is a is a good thing even though it feels yeah. terrible at the moment but that's the that's your limit but see tomorrow your limit will be a little bit further on but you know that's a hard thing i would lie that's not it's not a it's not an easy thing reassuring to hear you say that because that's kind of the way I've been thinking about things when I've you know researched and thought about everything a bit in in a bit more depth Uh, and it is a skill and sometimes you get it wrong and you just have to learn from it and realize but I think that I've used this kind of affirmation over praise so affirming like you know you did this this is this is a step forward as opposed to Kind of cheering at the end of the bed is often often more in, it instills a more of a kind of intrinsic motivation frozen the, <laughs> the, the other thing is if you are the sort of affirmation people that, that that are saying this is good you can let the family be the people that are like why well, yeah, this is a great you know you're really mm. proud they can be because they might be more receptive to that because they know who their family are they know they're not going to be manipulating them which is which is often a worry after having a you know the the terrible experience of ICU is that trust is not easy gathered so was there anything else you were no I know just thank you really thanks for talking to me it's been really nice to have a chat about all right is there anything that you want to promote or talk about anything promote (laughs) books papers Uh, websites um, anything like that (laughs) People are interested in rehab after critical illness. I'm, we run a, a master's module in it at Brunel University. It's part of an overall master's. So, um, and it's a multidisciplinary. So we have psychology, who are pleased to know, come and do a great session, speech and language therapy, occupational therapy, nutrition, dietetics, even sports physiologists, even physios, all sorts, come and come and teach on this module. So if, there's, if people are interested in kind of learning more and from an academic point of view then we are um do have that rehab module which is part of a wider msc and so yeah it's at brunel university and we're delivering it remotely this year so it can be done from the comfort of your sofa (laughs) okay well i would just like to thank you for your time and and coming and speaking to me because i've been looking for a physiotherapist for for a fair while because was trying i'm trying to get as many disciplines as i can uh, I've yeah. got I've got nursery, I've got Kate, uh, I've had two intensivists on, I've had a psychologist, and they're looking to try and get as diverse a like a viewpoint as I want because uh, you know this is an education tool, and I'm hoping to give as many views as I can. So I just wanted to thank Eve for coming on and giving her time, 
and I just wanted to say that I've just uh, found out that two members of the ICU Life and Recovery podcast family have been uh, honoured in the Queen's New Year's honours list. Um, Kate Tantum, who was on episode one, has been awarded the British Empire Medal. And Eve Corner, guest uh, in this episode, was awarded the MBE both of which are, are extreme honours for the dedication and hard work that they've both put into their various professions. And I would like to say that uh, congratulations and that I'm extremely happy for both of them. And it's just it's just brilliant to see um, healthcare workers um, being recognised in this way. And if you would like to contact me, you can contact me on icu.life.and.recovery at gmail.com or if you have twitter at icu underscore life um, any feedback, comments, questions um, suggestion of people to have on if you let me know there that would be great and then I can try and arrange things or answer any questions um, I hope you re- enjoyed this episode I thought it was really great And thank you for listening.